Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 4, Episode 1, A Fresh Start. Izanagi and his sister Izanami stood upon the floating bridge of heaven, looking down at the earth below them, which was covered with water. They were the seventh generation of gods, and their elders had given them an important mission, to create land. The two kami took hold of the heavenly jeweled spear and pressed it into the water below, churning and stirring the brine of the salty sea. After the brine curdled and became stiff, they lifted the tip of the jeweled spear out of the water, and the solidified brine dripped from its point into a pile floating upon the ocean. Thus, the island of Onogoro was created. Izanagi and Izanami married and made their home upon the island, first giving birth to the many islands that composed Japan and then to several kami who inhabited the land. However, when Izanami gave birth to Kagutsuchi, a destructive god of fire, she was killed in the process. Izanagi flew into a rage and slew Kagutsuchi, severing his child's head. He then set out on a quest and descended, while himself still alive, into Yomi, the land of the dead, to retrieve his lost love. He found her as soon as he could, but it was not soon enough. She had eaten the food of Yomi, and thus could not return to the living world. She told him that she would nevertheless ask for permission, and that he must wait for her. Wanting to see her more clearly in the dim shadows of the underworld, he lit a comb on fire and saw, to his horror, that she had already become a rotting corpse. He fled as quickly as he could, and she pursued, enraged that he would abandon her. With his wife hot on his heels, he emerged from the cave that led to Yomi and immediately sealed that cave with a gigantic boulder. Feeling the corruption of death and decay clinging still to his skin, Izanagi sought to purify himself in a nearby stream. As he cleansed himself, more kami were born from his purification. He washed his left eye and Amaterasu came into being. From the cleansing of his right eye was born Tsukuyomi, and lastly, the god Susanoo was born from the washing of his nose. These three are often called the three precious children. Amaterasu was the goddess of the sun, Tsukuyomi the god of the moon, and Susanoo the god of the sea, whose personality was as fickle and varied as the ocean. The stories from the Kojiki, like the one I've just summarized, certainly existed in some form before that work was completed, likely changing little by little over time as they were passed down through oral tradition. The Nara period was a time when things formerly considered ethereal or intangible were 
codified, solidified, and cataloged. This process was directed by the strict hand of the imperial court in order to more firmly establish the Yamato dynasty's right to rule and, by extension, the right of the officers of the court to direct national policy as they saw fit. This process of mythic consolidation served the larger agenda of political consolidation. The Yamato sovereigns established their right to rule through the specific claim that the dynasty itself was descended from the sun goddess Amaterasu. Looking back from where we stand today, they seem to have been wildly successful in cementing this idea of Yamato divinity on earth. While many attempts would be made in the coming millennia to place someone outside of the dynasty's bloodline upon the throne, including a nearly successful attempt later this season, to this day the emperors of Japan trace their lineage to the same source as Tenji and Temmu. This is not to say that the bloodline itself is unbroken. After all, if the entire family of the Yamato dynasty is descended from Amaterasu, then that gives the monarch a certain degree of expendability, provided they have a living blood relative who is eligible to serve. A defining conflict of the Nara period was whether the descendants of Tenji or Temmu had a better claim to sit upon the chrysanthemum throne. This wrangling between cousins would provide opportunities for many an ambitious courtier intent on becoming the power behind the throne. Because the Nihon Shoki ends with the reign of Empress Jito, it is necessary for us to consult some new sources, both contemporary and modern. I will, from time to time, cite a chronicle completed in 797 called the Shoku Nihongi, which was meant to be a continuation of the Nihon Shoki, obviously written by later contributors than its predecessor. In 708, Empress Gemmei ordered the construction of a new royal capital, and the various surveyors, geomancers, and other specialists found the perfect location. The new capital was intended to be a permanent settlement, a great city that would rival the mighty metropolises of Tong, China. It should come as no surprise that this new capital followed the same north-to-south, east-to-west grid pattern for its streets that the Tong capital Chang'an had pioneered. Although, like many other cultural imports from China, the new capital of Heizhou-kyo was not a precise copy, but showed signs of native influence as well. One primary difference is location. Heizhou-kyo was located on a lowland plain in Nara province, whereas Chang'an was nestled in mountainous countryside. The walls of Heizhou-kyo were considerably shorter and thinner than the mighty barriers of the Tang seat of power, and whereas the walls of China's leading city were composed of massive hewn stone blocks, the decorative roofed walls of Heizhou-kyo were made from the preferred medium of Japanese architecture, lumber hewn from local forests. 
The Daigokuden was the centerpiece of the capital, and the largest avenue which cut through the center of town led straight to the magnificent palace. One did not simply walk into the Daigokuden, however, for the building was part of a larger complex, featuring its own decorative wooden wall with a covered wraparound portico supported by columns. The main entrance to the capital was the Rajo Gate, called Rajomon in Japanese, located in the center of the southern section of the city wall. Stretching north beyond Rajomon was a rather large main avenue, which was nearly 250 feet wide, that's about 75 meters, non-American listeners, and you would still need to cover 3.7 kilometers, that's 2.2 miles, fellow Americans, before you reach the palace complex itself. But you're not inside the Daigokuden yet. You've merely arrived at the Suzakumon, called the Suzaku Gate in English. The wall that separated the palace complex from the rest of the city strikes me as reminiscent of the dividing ditches within the late Yayoi period settlements, which separated the emerging elites from the rest of the village. There can be little doubt that, by the Nara period, the elite clans that served at the imperial court enjoyed a drastically higher standard of living than their subjects. Those who hailed from aristocratic clans and worked in the imperial bureaucracy were called kuge. The houses allotted to them, or sometimes given as a gift from the Tenno, were large and spacious, featuring elevated construction, carpeted floors, and vast gardens, which were often used for growing beautiful flowers. The taxes, which were more like tributes, which the provinces owed to the court, added to the Kuge's lavish lifestyle, and they enjoyed the best food which the nation had to offer. They threw eccentric parties for one another, quenching their thirst with sake from fine ceramic cups as they played go or backgammon, shot dice, or attempted a primeval version of chess, enjoyments which had all made their way to Japan via China. Excavations have revealed fine glass jewelry, bronze handicrafts, and various ceramic trinkets both of native and mainland origins. The lifestyle of the Kuge seems much less charming when we consider the state of the commoners below them. The average peasant lived in a crude pit dwelling, dug into the earth and likely covered with a rudimentary straw roof. Many of the commoners farmed the land, taking advantage of the free acreage offered by the court to any who would work it. We discussed at the end of last season how the court exacted heavy tributes from these small family farms who often barely grew enough food to both feed themselves and honor their tax. Most of this season will focus on the activities and political developments at court, but it's worth remembering that the vast majority of the population knew nothing of elegant garden parties, silk clothing, or board games. While the common farmer worked his fingers to the bone, plowing the soil, planting the seeds, nurturing the sprouts, fending off pests, and finally harvesting his crops, the residents of Heijou-kyo were charged with stewarding the budding imperial bureaucracy. The Kuge's idea of work 
was to rise at dawn and report at once to your assigned office. The day would be filled with various tasks depending on your job, and everyone was expected to give their very best effort until finally the grueling workday would end at noon. Yes, you heard that correctly. The nobles worked until lunchtime, after which the rest of the day was generally theirs to do with as they saw fit. Hopefully you recall from the previous season that the upper echelons of the Nara government consisted of two halves named the left and the right. The left dealt largely with spiritual matters like ritual ceremony, divination, and civic affairs, while the right was concerned with more practical considerations like military, justice, and treasury. On paper, the court looks deceptively simple, but each minister had their own cadre of secretaries, scribes, pages, and deputies, and the controllers below them likewise had an entourage. The actual bureaus themselves were staffed with upwards of 20 people each, with some even having as many as 100 people working as clerks, record keepers, and mid-level supervisors. While the Yamato state continued its development as a dense bureaucracy and expanded its practical authority over western Honshu and Shikoku, the island of Kyushu underwent a rather interesting development. After the Baikje restoration effort failed, the islands nearest the Korean peninsula were fortified with ramparts and other defensive structures intended to protect Japan against a potential invasion by Tong, China. It wasn't long after the disastrous Battle of Baikong that China and the sole remaining Korean kingdom of Silla abruptly broke their alliance and fought a war for control of the peninsula. But it seems the Yamato court did not fully realize, or perhaps did not fully believe, that the Tong didn't have the resources for a Japanese expedition once the war against Silla was fully underway. As the defensive structures had already been built, the court decided to repurpose Kyushu as a port of entry for the rest of the country, encouraging diplomats who would otherwise have sailed straight for Naniwa and then marched on to Heijokyo to instead travel to Kyushu, where they would be entertained and their travel arranged by the authorities of the outpost, which was called the Dazaifu. In addition to staffing the necessary diplomats to greet visitors and make travel arrangements, the Dazaifu also hosted a military garrison. This was not some Spartan outpost on the kingdom's periphery, but a lavish facility capable of giving honored foreign guests the kind of welcome they would enjoy. It was likewise used as a staging point for vast Japanese embassies traveling to the peninsula, or the Tong Court, and assisted them on their return voyage to Heijou-kyo. It was frequently the case that the sovereign-appointed governor of a given province would continue living in the capital, and that his deputy or vice-governor would send him reports and tributes. Dazaifu seems to be the exception, however, and the appointed governor was expected to serve on location because of the importance of the post. It would also provide 
a good way to remove troublesome kuge from the capital and was sometimes seen as a sort of unofficial exile. Because it had its own court, military, and entertainment facilities, Dazaifu was often casually referred to as the distant capital. While it is generally known that the Amishi peoples still lived in the eastern and northern reaches of Honshu during the Nara period, Kyushu also had its share of tribal people groups who operated outside the authority of the imperial government. The Hayato people still lived on the southern reaches of the isle and practiced a more communal way of life while incorporating rice farming and other advances of the Asuka period. Composed of several subgroups, the Hayato were often hostile to the emperor and his underlings, but in truth they rarely encountered any officials from the court because they kept mostly to themselves in the far south. This uneasy mutual ignoring would not survive the Nara period, however, and we will spend a little time this season discussing the conflict, subjugation, and assimilation of the Hayato, as well as one of their cultural artifacts still practiced today. Hopefully you'll recall that Japan had begun adopting various law codes in the latter part of the Asuka period, especially the Yoro Code and the Taiho Code, and that the system of administration and law was referred to as the Ritsuryo system. Included in the Ritsuryo was a caste system, which organized the Japanese into two broad groups. The Ryomin, a word which literally translates to good people, consisted of four subcasts, which I list here, beginning with those considered most important. Kanjin, government officials. Komin, citizens. Shinabe, artists and other specialists who work for the court. And Zakko, a group that consisted of tradesmen whose crafts related particularly to the military. Then there were the five groups who together composed the Senmin, translated as low people, which consisted of Ryokyo, who served as imperial bodyguards, as well as guards for imperial tombs, Kanko, people sworn to farm imperial-owned land, essentially serfs, and Kenin, who were bondservants of high-ranking clans. The remaining two groups of Senmin were the Kunuhi and the Shinuhi, both of which were slaves who could be traded or abused at the whims of their masters. Most of the Senmin ranks were granted initially as a form of punishment, but that status would be passed down to their children. However, this system shouldn't be understood on the same rigid lines as other caste-based societies. Most Semmin would be pardoned automatically when they were 60 or 76 years old, depending on their subcaste, and some of those subcastes could even get married and have a family. And we should not imagine that conditions were drastically superior for the Komin subcaste of the Ryomin. These were the average citizens, most of whom were farmers. We've already discussed the fact that they lived mostly in humble pit houses and were often desperate to escape the state-enforced poverty of the tribute system that took the majority of their harvest. 
Some Kolmin would even willingly become Semmin by dodging their taxes or even committing a crime like theft. The lifestyle of a bond servant for a wealthy and powerful clan would likely be much more comfortable than what the desperate farmers had grown accustomed to in their former lives as Ryomin. Also, while it's tempting to think of the lower-ranking bond servants as merely passive observers to the various scandals, uprisings, treasons, and usurpations which occurred throughout the Nara period, this is also incorrect. The various Kuge, who decided to try and overthrow a powerful sovereign, were important people in their own right, and important people don't deliver their own messages. This meant that these plots required the help of Kenin bondservants to coordinate communication between allies and partners in rebellion. Some of these Kenin perceived what was happening and reported their masters to the authorities, hoping to be lifted back into the ranks of the Ryomin and maybe even gain a reward for their trouble. I'll make sure to note when these Semmin manage to avert an overthrow as they occur, they deserve recognition, after all. On paper, the Nara period state was a fully centralized bureaucratic monarchy on par with that of Silla or Tang China. The reality, however, was that no sovereign would sit long on the throne without enough support from powerful clans like the Fujiwara, Otomo, Nakatomi, or Tachibana. These clans would spend much of the Nara period wrangling with one another and, on occasion, with the sitting monarch themselves. It's tempting to hypothesize that the failure of the Nara Tennos to fully abolish the clan system is what ultimately stymied the royal house's attempts at gaining absolute power over the nation in the same fashion as, say, Charlemagne. However, the clans and the court existed in a more or less mutually beneficial arrangement, whereby the court was supplied with a ready crop of kuge, who likely had been trained by their fathers to serve in the office they inherited, and the children of powerful nobles could rely on the promise of the generous salaries they received in said offices, as well as the wealth they created from the tax-free shōen estates granted by the sovereign. Another concern throughout the Nara period was the threat of invasion from Tang China. While we have the benefit of hindsight to tell us that such an invasion was not forthcoming, I think it's important to keep in mind just how small the world would have seemed to the average Japanese person in the 700s compared to today. Most would have been aware that Korea lay to the east and that China was still a bit further off. Okinawa would have been known through trade, and India was famous for being the birthplace of Buddhism. They may have been aware of Taiwan in the abstract. The most educated among them may have known that many nations lay to the west of China, but this would have been mere trivia. Thus, because of the danger presented by both China's existence and their general tendency toward expansion, the imperial court had little incentive to disband the regional clan networks whom they would have to call upon should the nation require a defensive army. The move to Heijou-kyo meant an opportunity to reinvigorate the Yamato dynasty 
and push the rest of the nation into the path of a strong, centralized government with a charismatic Tenno leading their people into the future. But while the past is not so easily left behind, the future can also be extremely unpredictable. The eastern and northern parts of Honshu were still largely under the control of independent Amishi tribes, and the bickering of the Kuge clans who served the throne would lead to some dramatic confrontations and even outright rebellion. Next time, we'll continue our survey of the beginning of the Nara period by exploring in more detail the six schools of Buddhism, which began vying against one another for the sovereign's official support. 